your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Psalms, as we're in Psalm 71 today. Our series is entitled Snapshots in the Psalm. We've been traveling through and looking at and examining different Psalms in the Psalter. There are 150 different Psalms with many different authors written over a certain span of time, and they were songs. Uh, the Psalter is known as the Songbook of Ancient Israel. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 71. And it's a psalm that we're probably not very familiar with. But I hope today to examine it. Uh, we won't be able to examine it in great detail. There are 24 verses, so time doesn't allow us to really exhaustively jump into it. So we're going to get more of an overview of what's going on. And what's, what we see here is a psalm that is written in the midst of the storm. And I know a few weeks ago I talked about what do we do when the storms come, as we looked at Psalm 46. But what do we do when we're caught in the middle of the storm? I mean, we can prepare ourselves. The storms are coming at us. We get ready and to respond. But sometimes we don't have that time to get ready. The storm just comes, and it's at a moment in time. Just like we know how quickly a storm can brew here, how quickly a tornado can just a funnel cloud can develop, and people have just minutes to respond to it. So today we're going to look at this psalm written by an individual who is going through the storm of life. And how do we praise God in the midst of the storm? How do we lift our hearts to Jesus as we're going through such tremendous difficulty? So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Psalm 71. It is our tradition here at Village Bible Church, Grace Campus, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given me the command, you have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you have I leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, for my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and, still, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches to the highest heavens, to the high heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you, 
You have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's pray. Father God, bless the reading of your word. Glorify yourself through the preaching of the word today. May your words resonate in our hearts. May they echo across the chambers of our lives that we might walk forth transformed to the glory and honor of your great and awesome name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How does one praise God in the midst of the storm? Stephen Curtis Chapman, many of you might know his name, is a well-known contemporary Christian artist who has won numerous Dove Awards, written several hit songs, and has been honored by many other musicians who have recorded songs he's written. Married to Mary Beth, they have three biological children, Emily, Caleb, and Will. As their children grew, they decided to adopt three little girls from China, Sheohana, Shoei for short, Stevie Joy, and Maria Su Chongsi. From an outsider's perspective, everything seemed like bliss, that is, until May 21st, 2008. It was a typical day as Stephen and Mary Beth were in their house, house as their three youngest girls were playing outside in the yard. Will, 17, drove into the driveway in his old land cruiser when Maria, 5, went running up to see her older brother. Her sister, Shoei, called out for her to stop but she kept running because she was excited to see him and wanted him to lift her up on the monkey bars. But Will didn't see Maria, and in a moment it was over. The sound of flesh hitting fiberglass, immediately followed by a soft thud on the ground. Panic struck, shouting, screaming, anguish. Sirens filled the air. She was airlifted to the hospital, but her parents knew she was gone. The paramedics tried to resuscitate her, but it was of no use. The long and unwelcome journey of grieving had just begun. How does one respond to such a terrible tragedy? It's easy to praise and thank God when things are going well, but how does one praise and worship God in the face of such horrific and indescribable tragedy and terror. Days after Maria's fatal accident, Emily and her fiancé Tanner, Emily was their, one of their uh, biological daughters, and her fiancé Tanner, along with their brother Caleb and their closest friends, gathered around Will to somehow help alleviate his burden. Mary Beth describes what happened next. She says, Emily and Tanner slipped away and when they came back, they had gotten a basin of water and some soft towels. While the rest of us surrounded Will, they knelt and washed his feet, praying that the enemy would not get a foothold in his soul, praying that God would give Will peace and rest. What a remarkable act in the face of such tragedy. Not wanting their brother to bear the burden, they served him. It was an act of worship to the Lord their God. How would you respond in the face 
of such tragedy. That was the power of love in action. Tangibly demonstrated to, to a loved one racked with guilt and sorrow is almost beyond our ability to even fathom or comprehend. Trust in the time of the storm enabled hope to stay alive, even though tears of sorrow and sadness birthed in suffering were ever-present minders of a loved one now gone. Three years have passed for the Chapman family, and they continue on. They still grieve, but in the midst of their grief, there is hope for eternity. Today's message is about how to praise God in the storm. The Chapman family was able to praise God in the midst of their storm. That's what Psalm 71 is about. We're not exactly sure who the author of this psalm is. It's not identified as it is in many of the different psalms in which we read, as it would be so often seen as the psalm of David or the psalm of the sons of Korah or the sons of Asaph or the song of Moses or even the song of, or psalm of Solomon. But we can tell from the context in which we read that it's probably David. He refers to playing and worshiping the Lord and the harp and the lyre. I don't know if you remember or you were unfamiliar, but David is known as the sweet psalmist in Israel. He's the sweet singer. And it's written from his perspective as he is at the apex or in the winter of his life. He is older. His strength is beginning to fail. David was a very virile king, the warrior poet. But now he's standing near the end of his life, probably in his 60s. He dies at the age of 72 or his early 70s. And he is now faced with a calamity. Something has happened to him. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it can reasonably be uh, guessed that it is his interaction or the rebellion of his son Absalom. His son Absalom had issued a coup d'etat against his father, seeking to usurp and take his father's throne from him. And he successfully ran David, his father, out of Jerusalem. And one of David's closest counselors, a man by the name of Hehithophel, was a major participant and a helper within this coup d'etat. Now David is on the run for his life, and he is praying to God. And so we have this song of praise And we can see him in the midst of this giant storm, this huge crisis of faith for him. And he is reflecting back on his life. This is known as a lament psalm. There are many different types of psalms within Scripture. Each one has a specific purpose from which the author is writing. But this lament psalm is the most common psalm. And as a lament psalm, it has seven, usually seven different... uh, things within it, more of a way that it's structured. There is an invocation as he addresses God, a plea to God for help. Then he issues his complaint. And then there is either a confession of sin or an assertion of one's innocency. innocency. Then there is an imprecation on one's enemies. He's asking God then to judge them. Then he responds with a confidence that God will respond. And then he gives a hymn or blessing. Now that we see these seven elements within this psalm, we need to start looking at the content itself. We must look at the genre in which it's spoken. We must look at the language. But we also must say, what is it ultimately saying to us? Grammar is very important when we're looking and dealing with anything that was written within a different language. But at the same time, we must keep in mind that when we speak to one another, as you speak to me, I'm not analyzing your grammar. I'm trying to figure out what it is you are communicating to me. So we must look at Psalm 71 and say, what is God trying to tell us 
through David's circumstance and crisis of faith. Now, he says, and he's telling us that how we are to praise God through the midst of the storms of life. But before we can praise God in the storm, we have to do one thing. We have to acknowledge the reality of the storm. We can't begin to sweep it under the rug. Many of us try to do that. We pretend that it doesn't exist. That we just go on, trudge on without thinking about it. Some people just, um, just totally drown themselves in food or alcohol or drugs or whatever however else they can come into contact with because they don't want to think about what they're going through. It is so tremendously painful, but we can't. It would be wrong. We need to be able to face the storm of life fully sober, fully cognizant of what we're getting ourselves into or what we are in the midst of. So how did we get in the midst of this storm? Well, David shows us and explains to us, and through some of the storms of life, we get there because of ungodly foes. Look at verse 4. He says, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. The wicked are trying to kill David. The word actually in Hebrew is singular, saying that he has someone specifically in his mind that is pursuing him. Now, it could be King Saul, his father-in-law, his best friend's dad. I mean, he had a very dysfunctional relationship, David and King Saul. And it was very tumultuous. He was a young man. He was summoned to play for Saul to be his private musician. And he tries to kill him by throwing and casting a spear at him. And then throughout his life, I mean, David ends up marrying Saul's daughter. And Saul ends up giving her later on to another man as his wife. I mean, Saul pursues him multiple times. And if I remember right in Scripture, after doing a study on Saul, Saul tries to kill David eight different separate times. So it could be Saul that is pursuing him because David went out into the, the hills to flee from Saul as Saul was trying to, get his life, trying to kill him. So it was his father-in-law. His best friend, Jonathan, was also Saul's son. So Saul is just full of jealousy of him. And he's trying to kill him. So that could be the circumstance surrounding it. Or it could be his own son, Absalom. He loves Absalom. Absalom's a good-looking guy. He's got long hair. He's kind of like an ancient Near East Fabio. And this guy has got some really long hair. Every year he would cut his hair. It it weighed several pounds. And it said he was just good-looking from head to toe. No one is good-looking as Absalom. I am not, don't at all look like Absalom. But here is Absalom who has betrayed him, who has run him out of Jerusalem. And then Absalom, through talking with his counselor Ahithophel, David, David's trusted counselor, this was a man who was, who was in his inner circle. And the scripture says that Ahithophel's counsel was like the counsel of God. And Ahithophel turns against David for reasons we're going to see in just a moment. And then says to Absalom, Pursue him. As soon as David had left Jerusalem, he had gone weeping across the Kidron Valley. And Ahithophel says to him, Mount on your horses, go get him and kill him now. He's not ready. Get him. And Absalom weighs and actually listens to another man named by the name of Hushai the Archite, who David sends as a spy to thwart his counsel. 
But whatever the case may be, he knows that ungodly foes are creating this storm in his life. Now, when the storms come against us like that, we want to give up. I mean, can you imagine when your own family betrays you, what it would feel in your heart? It's one thing to have that coworker that you don't despise put a knife in your, the coworker you despise put a knife in your back, but it's a far another thing to have your father-in-law or have your own son seek to kill you. And David now is facing an uncertain future. That's the next point. An uncertain future. He doesn't know if he's going to continue being king. He doesn't know what awaits him. He's an older man. His strength is sapped. He says that many different times. My, I'm getting old. I am gray. My, my strength is spent. He's a man who is he's beginning to wonder, do I have the strength necessary to accomplish what I need to accomplish? What awaits me? In verse 9, he says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. David's an older man, as I mentioned before, probably in his 60s at the time of this writing. You know, it's amazing to me that as men get older, their strength begins to dissipate. For women, the beauty begins to fade. And our world today is addicted to both strength and beauty, virility. But as it fades, where is our strength? Where is our identity? Who are we as people? As our strength And beauty begins to fade, so too does life. But that is not how it should be. We should be growing in grace and wisdom and hope as the seasons of life pass. It shouldn't be surprising to see that the greatest number of suicides among white men are committed um, at the age of 65 and above. Increasingly, substantially, over the age of 85. Why? It's because men feel like their strength is lost. They have no identity any longer by what they do because so many men determine and find their identity in what they do while men, women have, a, have more of a tendency to find their identity within their relationships. But David is beginning to feel like, I'm cast off. Here's a younger, more virile man. Will I ever be king again? What awaits me in the future? I'm older and I'm gray and I don't know if I have enough gas in the tank. What awaits me? I mean, many of us feel that way. We have an uncertain future with what's going on. It could be the doctor's report that you'd received. It could be your spouse says, I no longer want to be in this marriage. It could be a conflict at work. It could be the loss of a relationship. You might have lost your house. It could be anything. And you wonder, what does the future hold? We fear, and the storm is upon us. So we have this storm that has come upon us because of unfaithful foes or ungodly foes, an uncertain future, and then unfaithful friends. Look at verse 10. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together. Now, the phrase there that we need to pay attention to, and they consult together, David has an intimate knowledge of something that's going on. He knows that two individuals are consulting together, which he was being informed to by his spy, Hushai, the archite. And he knew that Absalom was receiving counsel from Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had told Absalom, if you remember this story, uh, to go with David's concubines and sleep with him in the presence of all Israel so he would be a stench in his father's nose. Now, why would Ahithophel do this? This is the man, as I just mentioned before, whose counsel was like the very counsel of God. Why would this man, one of David's closest confidants, do this? Well, one of the little scattered references in reference to Ahithophel's life 
refers to his son and then his son's daughter. It turns out that if you do a little bit of study, that Ahithophel's granddaughter was Bathsheba. And when Bathsheba had become pregnant by David, I mean, it became known in Israel. It would have been a huge reproach, even to the king, to have such an act happen to her, I mean, to his new wife. The shame that would have been brought upon Ahithophel was terrible. We don't know how many years have passed between him, him decide, after Bathsheba, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and when David is at this point in life, probably almost 20 years, but Ahithophel never forgot what had happened there. And David knows that his son is receiving counsel from Ahithophel. And David is angry. I mean, this is one of his closest friends. He'd spent time with him. They'd fellowshiped together. They'd worshipped God together. They'd been in war together. And here the hand betrays him. I mean, isn't that how it is in history? Some of the most dramatic betrayals have been by closest friends. Think of the phrase by Shakespeare as he was quoting, or he was writing Julius Caesar, et tu brute, because it was Julius Caesar's best friend, Marcus Brutus, who stabs him in the back. Even Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest of the twelve apostles, Judas. We know that it's usually the closest to an individual that will sometimes or so often betray them. So David is feeling the pain of that. The storm is caused by ungodly foes, by an uncertain future, and unfaithful friends. So we see that these storms can be caused by ungodly foes, individuals that he encounters, but it can also come from our unparalleled father. Our unparalleled father. Father. See, the storms in life that we sometimes face come from the hand of God Himself. This is a very difficult reality for us to comprehend. Why would God send or allow circumstances like this to happen? Why does God allow suffering? If God is good, why does He allow us to go through such painful circumstances? I think of Job. Job had lost 10 of his children. He'd lost his entire career, and then he lost his health. He even says that his breath stinks to his wife. He'd lost everything. And his wife says to him, curse God and die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we not receive good from God and also evil? The understanding is, is that we will receive good from God and also bad. What does that mean? How do, we, how do we interpret that? We'll look at the life of Joseph for a moment. If you remember the life of Joseph, here's a man that God was with him, but he was betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery, and then he is put into prison. Yet God allowed it to happen. Who was behind it? Was it Satan? Or was it God? See, after, after he is released from prison, he is exalted to be the prime minister of Egypt. And his brothers come to him from Canaan, seeking grain because there was a vast famine in the land. And finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And does he take vengeance upon them? I mean, when he reveals himself to them, they were fearful because remember, they they had been the ones to sell him into slavery. They had been the ones that had caused all of his problems. What does he do? Does he say, now it's time to turn the tides. It's vengeance time. Let's go. No. He says this, I am your brother, Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. See, God had brought that storm into his life. God had been the one to walk him through that, to put him into that circumstance. Why? For his glory. That he might save and preserve life. How often have we gone through a storm of life having hating every second of it? Have you been through a storm of life? Let me see your hand if you've been through a storm of life. There better be every hand up. If not, I'm thoroughly disappointed. You've been through a storm. Now what's it like after you've gone through the storm? Did you hate it in the middle of it? Did you look back on it and say, God taught me something there? I think many of us realize that sometimes God needs to get our attention. He needs to bring pain and suffering into our life so that we turn to Him. Because we're too confident in and of ourselves. And that's what David is realizing. He says to him that it is you have made me see many troubles. Look at verse 20. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. Will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You bring me up again. He recognized that this calamity that he was facing, God allowed it or directed it to occur. That's pretty phenomenal. Pretty phenomenal. But he understood that God needed pain and suffering to get his attention. We're stubborn people. As C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses pain to get our attention. You see, we can praise God in the midst of the storm when we understand the results of the storm. In verse 7, David wrote, I have been as important to many, but you are a strong refuge. Now, this is a difficult verse. It's a difficult word. It's a word that we don't use very often. Portent. That's what the English Standard Version uses, while other translations use the term prodigy and marvel and wonder. But the word portent is mopeth, which means wonder, sign, miracle, portent, and comes from the root word yafa, that means conspicuous. But why has he been important? He wants us to know that all the world wonders at me because of my miseries, but both those in authority and the common people, yet being assured of your favor, I remain steadfast. In In other words, it's this. God brought the suffering upon me that he might show his presence in my life. That God desires to bring glory to himself through our suffering. Do you realize that? God has a purpose for the suffering circumstance that you're in right now, whether it's a difficulty at your job, whether it's a medical report. It's some way of God using you and wanting to glorify himself in your life through your suffering. See, storms, there are three things that storms help us do. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Storms bring an understanding of vulnerability. In verse 7, we can see that in Psalm 71. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. Meaning that I've been an example. I'm I'm vulnerable. I'm going to suffer. I'm suffering and everybody's seeing it. I'm I'm vulnerable. We need to know that we're not the end of everything. We're human. We're not the centers of our own universe. 
Secondly, we need to understand that storms show us our need of dependency. It reminds us that we are not gods, but human. God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. We need Him. It is very difficult in our world today where we have all of our needs taken care of. We have electricity pumped into our homes. We have water pumped into our homes. We need food. We go to the grocery store. We can get all types of different things. But I look at those that are going through the crisis in Somalia, and they don't have access to any of those things. God is using that. God will use that to bring His name glory. But it shows them. Ask them as they're going through that, who, is their, who are they depending upon? They, if they are sufficient in and of themselves, if they believe themselves to be gods and masters of their own destiny, I guarantee that they, will sh- they know that they are dependent upon something greater than themselves. Storms show us our need for dependency. St- storms also reveal our sense of urgency, which, which means storms reveal us for who we are. They reveal the cancer in our souls. I don't know if you've ever seen those stories of the dogs that can detect cancer. Dogs that start smelling on their owner. And the owner's like, why? I mean, it could be smelling in a very strange area, and it pushes them, and it pushes them. And they're like, what are you doing? The dog normally doesn't do this. And as the dog pushes, they feel this pain, and they're they like, wait a minute, there's something there. And, and then they end up going to the doctor, and they find out they have cancer. See, what God does is he uses these pains in life to draw our attention to the cancer of our souls. The things that are keeping us from walking with Him. The sins that have crept in and we have refused to deal with in our lives. David understood that. That's why he said, this is from your hand. And he's renewing his confidence in God. He is laying out his petition, but he's renewing his confidence in who God is. See, we can praise God in the midst of the storm once we acknowledge the reality it's understand the results and when, we have a repu- and when we can cultivate a proper response to the storm. Now, a proper response involves several things. It remembers, first of all, remembering the character of God. Look at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. He is using the covenant name of God again, Yahweh. It means to be. And he is identifying that he is the servant of the one true God and he is taking refuge in the one true God, not in the other gods of the nations who were localized deities that were worshipped by individuals in certain cities or geographical locations. There were gods of cities, there were gods of the plains, there were gods of the hills, there were the gods of the sea and the gods of the sky. And he's saying, no, 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 I am worshipping the Lord. That's why it's designated in all caps. Because He is the one true God. It's the covenant name of God. It's the name by which God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was at the burning bush and He asked Him, He said, when the Israelites ask me who it is that sends me to them, what shall I say? What is your name? And He says, tell them that I am has sent you. That God is the great covenant God. We have to remember God's character. That God is good just as we sang a few moments ago. That's what David understood. He says, O Lord God, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. I'm your servant in your righteousness, that God alone is the righteous one. Deliver me, rescue me, incline your ear to me, and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. The word continually is used three times within this psalm. And it's the understanding is that you can continually go to God again and again and again. You can never exhaust the mercies of Almighty God. 
No matter what you do, that if you come to him in repentance and faith, he will by no means cast you out. That he is always faithful to himself and to his people. That no matter what you go through, no matter what stupid sin you have done, that if you have come with a broken and contrite heart, he will in no way cast you out. He will receive you as his child. Just as God illustrates, as Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father is waiting for the son to return. He's not going to say, tough luck. You made your bed, sleep in it. He's saying, come to me, my son. Let's celebrate. The celebration that God has over one sinner who repents. We must remember the character of God as David prays. We also must remember or review the compassion of God. In verse 4, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man, for you are Lord of my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. He's going back and reminding himself and God of what God has been to him. That he says, I've remembered you. I have followed you from the time that I was young. God, don't forget me now at the end of life. As I'm getting near the finish line and I'm seeming to trip up, be there for me. You are my hope. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. He's reviewing all these things because it is God that enabled him. Remember, David had, pr- had prayed and written Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He realized that even from birth, he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, a child is completely dependent upon their parent. And he's saying here, I didn't cause myself to be born. I didn't cause myself to learn about you. It was because of your compassion toward me that you enabled me to be a recipient of your all-encompassing grace. He reviews the compassion of God. God is compassion. He is David's hope and his trust. David has been taught about God since he was a little boy. David acknowledges that God enabled him to be who he is and where he is. God could have kept himself hidden from David's sight, but instead he reveals himself to him because he is the compassionate God. We also see that David is rejoicing in the celebration of God. Look at verse 14 for a moment. He is worshiping him in the midst of the storm because he says, but I will hope continually. There's that word continually again, again and again. Some translations have it daily. It's the understanding that it's habitual. He's doing it over and over again. And I will praise you yet more and more. I'm, I'm doing it, but I'm going to do it even more as I'm getting older in my life. I'm still going to worship and pursue you. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. It's incomprehensible to me. And then skip down to verse 22. I will also praise you with the harp. This is where we can see, because remember, David is the sweet harpist, the sweet psalmist. For your faithfulness, O oh oh my God. He's recounting again the character of God, and he's celebrating before him. I will sing your praises. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Did you know this? That it's okay to shout? It's okay. It's all right. I won't tell. You can shout. I know some of us, we get, we get a little nervous. There goes Bertha. She's going on. And 
can, it can, it's like a stoke in the fire. You know, some of us could do a little bit of lesson. Sometimes we need to be quiet in the presence of God. As the scripture says, be still and know that I am God, or the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And there's other times that we need to shout. Just like the Israelites, when they were with Joshua, they were going around the walls of Jericho. He didn't say, praise Jesus. <laughs> praise God. He didn't say that. He said, praise! And they got loud. And that wall came falling down. We can shout. It's okay. David is shouting. He says, my lips will shout for joy. When I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. He's doing so continually. Again and again, he is recounting. Even as an older man, he's, he is playing the harp for God. Look in verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs. How many of you have old age and gray hairs? <laughs> Amen, Bertha. Some of us are in denial that we have old age and gray hairs. The scripture says that gray hairs are a sign of wisdom. I told my mother she's denying herself wisdom by dyeing her hair. They are a sign of wisdom to the aged. And David is saying here, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, give me the chance and I'm going to do it. This is the time I got left. I'm not going to squander it. I'm not going to waste it playing shuffleboard and bridge all the time. I'm going to redeem my age for the glory of God. So even to old age, God wants us to be used for Him. David's age doesn't stop him. He renews his consecration to God. That's what we are to do in the midst of our suffering, to renew our consecration. That means to be set apart, to renew our commitment to God. As we face this storm, David is renewing his commitment. He said, though I'm going through this, I could give up, but I'm not. I was listening to the late great preacher Adrian Rogers, Southern Baptist preacher who went home to be with the Lord several years ago. Great man of God, great preacher. His sermons still are impacting for the kingdom of God, even though he is dead, yet still he lives. And his words are speaking to us today. And he's recounting a story when his baby died of SIDS. He had been visiting a man in the hospital. No one had referred him to him. No one had, had told him about it. He just walked up and approached to him and just started witnessing to this man. And the man was a curmudgeon. That's what Rogers says. And he, this old man, had heard that, that Adrian had lost his son, his baby, to SIDS. And after the funeral, he went back to visit the man, and the man said to him, What are you doing here? He said, After hearing about your baby dying, why are you still here? You should be cursing God. He said, No. That hasn't changed my hope and my commitment to one God one bit. Matter of fact, it's, it's used, God has used this to revive our hearts, to help us renew our commitment to Him, to know that this world is not our home. And that this is a momentary affliction. Though it's painful, it's for our good. See, some people think that they're too old, that they're too beyond, and 
that God can't use them anymore. I'm too old. It's a young person's world. I mean, we don't treasure older people today in our fast-paced environment. Did you know in China, up until just a few years ago, there was only one nursing home for all of China? One. You know why? Because the aged were taken care by their families in the homes because they honored the aged and the elderly so much. Today, in our world, it's not that way. I mean, everybody's trying to get younger. Collagen injections, facelifts, rhinoplasty. I mean, we are image-conscious people. We're so conscious of who we are, and we always want to look younger. What happened to honoring those with gray heads? Honoring the aged. The Bible understands honoring the aged. And even if you are aged, you're getting older, you're feeling that the, the, the tabernacle, that tent that you're living in is starting to fray at the seams, God still wants to use you. Consider for a moment those who, think, who thought they were too old for doing what God wants them to do. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when God chose them to have a child. Do we have anybody in here that's 90 yet? <laughs> I love you, Bertha. Okay. I lost my place. All right. <laughs> Moses was 80, and his brother, 83, Aaron, when God called them into service. Joshua led Israel until he was 110. Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past childbearing years, and God used them to bring forth John the Baptist. And both Simeon and Anna whom were both quite old, testified to Jesus' messianic identity while he was a newborn. It doesn't matter how old you are. God can and still use you, and that's what David is saying. I'm older, but I'm going to continually praise you with the harp. Even with old and gray hair, I'm not going to forget you. I'm still going to be up there and praise your name. And I, you know what? I'm going to do so more and more. I'm not going to get quieter. I'm not going to lose my zeal. I'm going to get even more fired up. So renew your consecration. Or perhaps you think you're too young. Well, how about Samuel? He was dedicated to God's service when he was a toddler. God spoke to him while he was still a young man. God worked through David while he was still a youth to defeat Goliath. And Josiah became king when he was eight years old. You're never too young. And you're never too old. Lastly, David reclaims his confidence in God. Look at verse 21. He says, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. He realizes that God is going to work in his favor. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will comfort you again and increase your greatness? It's right in here, right in the word of God. God delights in using us for his glory. And the storm we go through now is what, uh, now is what Paul considered to be the momentary affliction. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Write this down. Write that in your margin. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Because Paul says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remain steadfast in the midst of the storm and let God use your suffering to bring his name glory. Last night at Cellular Field, Joel Osteen preached to a packed house. He said, 
You wouldn't be alive unless God had another victory in store for you. You need to get ready because Jubilee is on the way. Now, he then went on later to say this. This world, this economy would like us to believe I can't, that we're hopeless, we're helpless, and our hands are tied. He said, but we're going to celebrate the I can. Now, before you applaud to that, such teaching might seem good, but the problem is that it's focusing on the self and what I can do and not on the Savior and what he can do. He's saying it's all about what I can do, not what God can do. It's not about God granting us another victory or having a better economy, although those are good things. Because it's about using the things we're going through. See, God wants us to use our suffering to bring His name glory. It's not always about being on the mountaintop. It's about going through the valley. Now I want to conclude with a word from John Piper, the great pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. In a sermon of his, he began to elaborate on what he hates about the prosperity gospel. He said, how horrible it was that prosperity preachers were making owning a BMW a sign of gospel. He said that was not what made the gospel beautiful. I mean, he, he really shoots a laser beam from the pulpit. And then he says this. He goes, I'll tell you what makes Jesus beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street. And you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you on earth? There is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. Do you want to make God look glorious? Praise Him in the storm. Go to Him as a refuge and let the world see Christ in you through your suffering. As you suffer, as the storms rage on, Clinging to Jesus, and that will make Jesus look beautiful. Let's pray. Father, there are many here in this room right now that are going through the storms of life. Storms that I can't even begin to comprehend. Storms that no one else knows about. Storms of their own private hell going on around them. Whether it's a marriage failing, whether it's their own personal sin, whether it's something that has happened to them, whether it's a betrayal, whether it's a loss of a job, the loss of a home, the loss of a child. Lord, you are there for them. Lord, I pray that you give them your strength, that they might renew your, their commitment to you and that they might see you in the midst of it. They might redeem their suffering just as David did, as David was pleading with you. He reasserts it's confidence in you, understanding who you are and what it is that you desire to do in our lives. Lord, may you be God in this church. May the name of Jesus be hallowed and honored. May sinners come through the doors of the sanctuary. May they be convicted of sin and see their need of a Savior. Lord, may we ever be mindful of who you are and what it is that you desire to do in our lives. Lord, we renew our commitment to you today. Lord, old, young, middle-aged, it doesn't matter. Lord, help us to reassert our confidence in you. We know, Lord, that you desire to use us to bring your name great glory and redeem your, our suffering for the awesome, awesome praise of your great and holy name. And we now, Lord, prepare our hearts for communion. 
Lord, help us to turn our thoughts toward heaven, to the risen Savior and what he has done on our behalf. Lord, remove any sin that has crept up in our hearts. And Lord, may you glorify your name in our communion time today. In Jesus' name we pray.